You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 13, 47 through 52. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and will separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, and he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew now for over a year. Uh, We've been going through verse by verse pretty much because we want to deal with all that Matthew teaches, and some weeks you get these passages that are familiar and everyone loves, and other times you get these passages that are a little harder and a little more challenging. Um, So after hearing the scripture read, I think we should pray before we jump into this. Father, we come to you and we, we ask, we know that Understanding your word is a gift that you give to us. And so we ask that you would pour that gift out upon us. I pray that my words would honor you and be truthful and faithful to your word. And I pray for all of us. We, we come in on Sundays and there's just so much going on in our lives. We're distracted. Uh, we've got things going on in the back of our minds. And I pray that you, in light of that, I pray that you would give us the ability to hear, to understand, to receive, to sit with it. Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of the church and for this opportunity for us to to gather and worship and to be disrupted, disrupt the routine so that we might hear your word, which tells us the way to life everlasting. We love you. We thank you for sending your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, I was in my backyard with my daughter and heard some sirens getting louder and an ambulance pulled in to our neighborhood and went down the road. And I thought someone maybe fell or someone had a heart attack, you know. Uh, And then about 90 seconds after that, we're still in the backyard, I see like a huge billows of black clouds pouring into the sky right down the road from our house and uh, like seven fire engines, pretty much every engine from the region I felt like showed up in our neighborhood and they were amazing, they got there quick. Uh, And a house, it didn't burn down but it had significant fire damage, thankfully no one was hurt. But I was there and I was watching this all go down with our kids pretty much right in our front yard. And so for the rest of that, that day and that evening, the topic of fire and house fires kind of consumed our conversation. And as Pastor Chad likes to say, we, we, we always want to live in a state of preparedness. I viewed this as a great opportunity to go over our emergency fire plan. What happens if there's a fire in our house? And so at dinner that night, 
I pose that question, guys, what happens if our house catches on fire? What do we do? And we've talked about this before, but that probably wasn't, that night probably wasn't the best time to bring up the conversation because the conversation did not go like I expected at all. A few of my kids started freaking out at the question. They started asking me all these questions about the... (laughs) The science behind fire, the dynamics of fire, we're going and checking smoke detectors and talking about electrical outlets and fire safety in the house. And then they start asking me some deeper questions, some existential questions. Like, why did God create fire? Why does God let houses burn down? And so they go to bed that night and they can't, a couple of them can't fall asleep because they're sure that as soon as their eyes close, our house is going to, you know, combust. And so my youngest daughter, she comes downstairs and she asked me a question. She said, dad, can you promise me that our house will never burn down? It's like, I don't know how to answer that question. I can tell you like 99% chance. And then her brother came in and he's like, but that's the only house we've ever seen burn down ever. And I was like, actually, and I started listing off all these (laughs) When I was growing up, one in my backyard, one of my friends, <laughs> my wife was like, you couldn't have waited till after they fell asleep, you know, talked about it the next morning, lesson learned. But one of the challenges in parenting, one of the real challenges is knowing when do you let your kids be kids and then when do you let them in on reality? I mean, kids, they live with a lot of illusions. You know, babies come from storks, and carrots give you night vision, and they think a month is a long time, and they think death is a myth. They think that we're all going to live forever. When do, you, when, do you bring them, when do you let them just be kids, be naive? And when do you bring reality to bear on their illusions? It's the challenge of parenting, the tension of parenting. And the challenge for us is it's not just our kids who have illusions. We have illusions, too, about life. We have illusions about marriage. You know, pretty much everyone who gets married, they go in with all of these expectations, and then the rest of their life is kind of dying to those illusions and living with reality. We have illusions. Maybe you want to be married and you're single, and that's an illusion uh, that, that you were living with, and now you're, you're coming into the reality of it. We have illusions about who, who we're going to be, what we're going to do, what we're going to accomplish. We have illusions about God and about the church. And sooner or later in life, you live long enough and our illusions eventually come crashing on the rocks of reality. I remember a few years ago, I just hit a really rough spot in life in like a whole lot of different areas. There was some personal stuff going on. There was real challenging things happening in ministry and the church I was struggling in my walk with God, and I felt like a kid on a beach that every time I was able to get up, another wave would come and knock me over. And again and again, and I was so discouraged, and I was meeting with a mentor of mine, sharing all of this. I'm like, none of this is going the way it's supposed to go. And he said to me, Kevin, I'll never forget these words. He said, what is, is the teacher. And I kind of nodded along, (laughs) but it sounded nonsensical at the time. Like, what is, is the teacher? It sounds like some Yoda stuff. But the more I sat with it, I realized it's actually a profound statement. What is, reality, is teaching us about our illusions. And I'm convinced 
that one of the hardest yet most essential tasks of life is learning to let go of our illusions so that we can embrace reality as it truly is. I think that's the, the essential task of growing into maturity, whether we're talking about human maturity or spiritual maturity. And I say all of this because as we've spent the last month looking at Matthew 13, one of the things that's really struck me is that what Jesus is doing throughout this chapter is he's revealing to his disciples and to those of us who have ears to hear, he's revealing to us the nature of ultimate reality. And in doing so, he's shattering a lot of illusions we have about life and about God and about what God is up to in this world. So he tells the story about the, the sower. And what he's doing there, he's saying, listen, the kingdom of God is at hand. And yes, this is the greatest news that, in history, but, but don't be an under, uh, under any illusion that everyone's going to rejoice at this. Not everyone's going to receive this news. And even some people who seem like they're excited, they're not going to follow through. And he tells the wheat and the weeds. You know, if the kingdom of God's at hand, that means God's dealing with all evil here and now. And Jesus says, no. Evil's going to be here until the end of the days. And then he tells mustard seed and leaven, these short little parables. And there he's speaking to, he's basically saying, don't, don't be discouraged when God's work of redemption isn't more impressive. Uh, on this earth because it moves slowly. It's unstoppable, but it moves slowly. And so what Jesus is doing is he's pulling back the curtain, saying the kingdom of God has landed, but it's going to be different than you think. And don't be under any illusions. Instead, embrace the reality. Well, today, we're looking at the seventh and final parable in Matthew 13. It's not as well known as the others. Uh, as my friends would say, this is a deep cut. This is on the B side. Uh, this is a parable that a lot of people don't teach on and a lot of people would like to avoid. But I think this parable is essential for us. It's short, Jesus says two sentences, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. The net Jesus is referring to here, it's different than a throw net. It was called a drag net because you would literally drag it through the water. Either you'd pull it through or it'd be dragged behind a boat. And it would be a big net and you would drag it through and it would sweep up everything in its path. And so you would get the fish you're looking for, the good fish, but you'd also get bad fish. You'd get other sea creatures, crustaceans, or eels, and you'd get all kinds of debris as well. Anything that's in the lake, anything that's in the path, the net will gather up. And so this method of fishing is pretty effective. The only downside is, like, you're not done fishing when you bring the net in. You've got to actually bring the net on shore, and you pull out all of the fish you're looking for, the good fish, and then all of the, the other things, the eels, you've got to get rid of. And so you, you would throw them either back into the water or throw them away. Now, I'm guessing not many of us have ever fished with a dragnet before, and so this story is a little strange to us, even the concept. But for Jesus' disciples, this was something that they did all the time. It's something they'd seen happen dozens of times, if not hundreds of times. This was normal, everyday life. And often when Jesus tells parables, he'll tell the story. People will sit there and scratch their head and wonder what it means, and Jesus kind of just lets them sit with it for a while, but not this time. Jesus doesn't give them any time to consider what the meaning 
of this parable of a net is. Instead, he jumps straight to the explanation and he says, just like that net, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying that picture, which you guys have seen a hundred times, that's how this present age is going to come to an end. There's going to be a great separation. If you were here two weeks ago and Pastor Jonathan preached on the parable of the wheat and the weeds, you probably noticed some similarities between the two parables. The stories obviously are different, but the message is very similar. And in fact, verse 42 and 50 in this chapter, they're at least in my translation, they're exactly the same. So some people have asked, like, what does this parable add? It actually includes less details than the wheat and the weeds. What, what new thing is Jesus bringing in with this parable? And the only new thing I can find is the repetition, that he's saying it again. And while the parable of the wheat and the weeds is more about learning to live with patience in the face of evil, this parable is just straight up about judgment. It's hard. It's a hard parable. But it's necessary for us. You know, Matthew, he spent decades, probably 20 to 30 years, composing his gospel, putting it together. What's the best way to communicate all the things Jesus taught? Nothing in here is here by accident or haphazard. And this is the third of five discourse in Matthew's gospel. It's right in the center. And this is the seventh and final parable at the end of that center teaching of Jesus. Matthew's saying this is important. And it's likely that Jesus often ended his kingdom story sessions with parables like this one. He talked about judgment a lot. Jesus talked about judgment and hell more than any other person in the Bible. And I say all that to say, if we're going to take the Bible seriously and we're going to take Jesus seriously, we have to take his teachings on judgment seriously. We can't dismiss them. It's not, we can't dismiss them and, and then act like we, we still want to worship him or collect things from him or collect sayings from him. He talked about it a lot. And one of the reasons people struggle with the whole doctrine of judgment is because throughout church history, it's often been wielded as a club used to beat people into submission. You know, you preach, this is the judgment that's coming, and then whatever you want to see changed in people, you warn them about hell, you tell them the fire is coming for them, and then you tell them to change that behavior. But that's not what Jesus is doing here at all. We know from earlier in the chapter, verse 36 in the chapter, that Jesus, at this point, he's only talking with his disciples. He's no longer with the crowds. He's pulled his disciples aside. And his disciples, remember, these are men who've left everything to follow Jesus. They're his closest companions and his friends. And so Jesus isn't telling this parable to them, trying to scare them or to threaten them, you know, or discourage them from maybe stop following him or whatever. He tells them this parable because he wants to let them in on reality. He wants them to know the way things really are. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus tells his disciples, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, I'm letting you in. I'm telling you. 
And you have to realize in that day there was no consensus either in the world or even in Judaism about how the world would end. There was a lot of speculation. There were people who would argue, will there be a resurrection? Will there not be a resurrection? How is this whole thing we call reality going to end? And Jesus, he gives a great gift. He says, I'll tell you. You don't have to speculate. You don't have to guess. I'm going to tell you how it all ends. It ends with a day of judgment, a day of separation, and everyone will be divided into one of two groups. That's hard. There are a lot of reasons I think we struggle and stumble at the doctrine of judgment. But as I've been thinking about it, I think one of the reasons we don't like to think or talk about judgment or hear sermons on judgment or maybe even preach sermons on judgment is because as a people, we don't like to, to think or talk about death. You know, we, as a generation, I think more than anyone else in history, a very tempting illusion for us to, to buy into is that our lives as they are here and now are going to go on forever. We just don't think about it. We push the, the whole, the truth that one day we are going to die. We push it to the edges of our thinking. And we live in a society which enables us to do that. You know, for most of human history, you couldn't do that. There were constant wars. There were disease. There was the death of children and women dying in childbirth. Death was much more present in your life. But for us, it's not so present. And we as a whole, we've kind of done our best to push, push the idea and push our cemeteries out of the center of town to the fringes of town. It used to be if someone you loved died, you would have a hand in helping them be buried you oftentimes bury them in the church cemetery. <laughs> Churches aren't, don't come with cemeteries anymore. I don't know if you've noticed that. I mean, could you imagine the uproar if we said, you know our field out there, we want to turn that into a cemetery. Could you imagine the uproar in the community? Why? Because we, we don't want dead people around us. We like to push that as far away from us as possible. In this text, Jesus is... He's appealing to us to embrace the reality of our own mortality and to take to heart the reality of judgment. He doesn't want us to be naive. And so the question we have to ask, if everyone's going to be separated into to one of two groups, what is it that's going to lead to the separation? What, what's going to distinguish the two? What's the basis of the judgment that's coming? What's going to cause some people to go to eternal life and other people to go to eternal destruction? People have answered this question differently throughout the ages. I mean, in that day, a lot of people would say, well, the Jews are going to eternal life and the Gentiles are going to eternal destruction. I grew up hearing it was the good people who go to eternal life and it was the bad people who went to hell. Maybe you think religious, irreligious, or maybe you even think it's, it's those who believe in Jesus versus those who don't. And I won't say that that's not true, but I will say that's not what Jesus says in this text. What Jesus says will be the dividing point on the day of judgment. He says the angels will come out, which is mysterious and terrifying if you know anything about angels in the Bible. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. 
The line that will be drawn on that day is between those who are righteous and those who are evil. And I recognize that for a lot of you, that might sound like Jesus is saying that the good little boys and girls are going to heaven and all the bad ones are going to hell. God loves the good people, but he's stoking the flames for all the bad people. And I would say that's not what Jesus is saying. That's us importing our understanding of the word righteous into the text. And we know this because when we look at Jesus' life, we see that this thought that, well, good people go here, bad people go here, it doesn't line up with what we see in his life or teaching at all. I mean, Jesus, he spent an awful lot of time eating and drinking and hanging out with sinners. I mean, to the point where Gossip started to spread about him. This guy's a glutton and a drunkard, but he's claiming to talk about God. And if every party Jesus went to, you know, he was like, all right, I got to get to bed early. I got to heal a bunch of people tomorrow. Before I leave, let me tell you a quick story. And then he told them about a fiery furnace that the flames were being stoked for their eternal destruction. I imagine that those parties would have ended sooner. He wouldn't have gotten invited back. When he was with them, he talked about grace and forgiveness and healing and hope. Even more, when we read the Gospels, we see that the most intense points of conflict Jesus had with people, it was with the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, Pharisees, we all familiar with that term. They were the conservative religious leaders. It was almost like a religious political party. By every measure, they were righteous. The scribes, though, we don't know as much about. The scribes, sometimes they're called teachers of the law. These guys, these guys were revered as much or more than anyone. And I want to talk about them briefly. Uh, the scribes, originally this position of being a scribe, it started, because you've got to remember, they didn't have the printing press back in that day. And so if you were going to preserve God's word in the Torah, it was going to be preserved because someone sat down and copied it word for word. And so some men would be raised up, and they would spend their entire lives copying books of the Bible by hand, six hours a day, or six, six days a week, 10 hours a day. This is what they gave their life to. Well, over time, if you copy certain books of the Bible that many times, over time, you start to, to get an idea of what they're saying. You start to become pretty knowledgeable. And so over time, the, the role of scribes shifted. They stopped being mere copyists, and they became scholars and experts and teachers of the law. And by the time Jesus stepped into the world, these men held a place of great honor in society. They were revered. They were known as the experts at knowing the law, at interpreting the law. If you had a question about, can I do this on the Sabbath or not do this? Or can I eat this or not do this? Can I wear this or not this? You would go to them and they would make their rulings. And then on top of that, they would look at the law and they would add sometimes some traditions to it, some other things like, hey, just be careful. We don't want to get anywhere close to breaking the law. So they would add some extra rules on it. They were the most, quote unquote, righteous people of the day. Everyone looked up to them. Sometimes people will come, come up and talk to me because I'm a pastor. Uh, it's like I think they think that I was just born as a pastor, you know, into a vacuum or out of a vacuum. They'll be like, well, you know, I'm not, as, I'm not like you. I'm just a normal person. Uh, people feel that way with me. And if you know me, that's crazy. But in that day, these guys, you'd tremble if they came in the room. 
And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about righteousness, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which to people in that day had to sound crazy because these guys, as far as how they lived their lives, man, they, they were perfect. Now, what's interesting is by the time we get to Matthew chapter 23, which will probably be in about a year, Jesus, he delivers one of his most, one of his fiercest sermons. And he directs it straight to these scribes. And he said, you guys, you are snakes. You're blind guides. You're hypocrites. Not that you just say one thing and do another, but your whole life is an act. And then he even goes so far, he says, you are sons of hell. Why? Why did Jesus go to the most religious men, most righteous men of the day, and call them sons of hell? He tells us. Because while they meticulously tried to follow all of God's commands in their behavior, they didn't give much of a thought to God's heart. And so Jesus will indict them. He'll say, you tithe on your spices. Awesome. Any of you that righteous, you buy spices at Kroger and then you pull out a tenth? He says, you tithe on your spices. You care so much about that, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. See, what Jesus is saying here, he, it's not, he's not saying that it was their righteousness. It didn't like reach far enough. He's saying that it didn't go deep enough. That they turned it into a game, a religious game of who can keep the rules. Near the end of that sermon, he tells them, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It's no wonder that these men who were so revered by everyone in Jerusalem wanted to put Jesus to death. Now, the, the righteousness that Jesus is talking about in this parable, when he says the evil will be separated from the righteous, it's not just about the things we do. It's not just about our behavior. It is about that, but it's about a lot more than that. True righteousness extends well beyond our behaviors to our hearts. It extends not just to what we do, but to what we love, what we long for, what we desire, what motivates us. You could say it like this, the true righteousness is not just doing what God says, but it's also wanting what God wants, that there is consistency between who you are on the outside and who you are at the very center of your being. There's good news and bad news about this. The good news is that means that the kingdom of heaven is not reserved for those who can play the religious game really well. The kingdom of heaven is not reserved for those who can obey all of the commands the best. That's the good news. The bad news is who of us here can say that our greatest, deepest, and only longing is to do God's will? Who of us here can say with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we desire 
nothing more than to live in line with God's will and his kingdom. And yet, in the parable, Jesus says that's what it takes to stand on the day of judgment. You need that kind of righteousness. It's hard. It's a hard teaching. Jesus taught hard teachings like this a lot in Matthew 19. He says something kind of similar, and his disciples are like, okay, then who, who will be saved? Who can be saved? And Jesus responds with, man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And not too long after that, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have their way. They get Jesus arrested. They trump up some charges against him. And before you know it, he's dying on a cross. And they thought they were winning, but they didn't understand that this was the plan. That God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So as Jesus is on the cross, he's taking all of our sins, all of our unrighteousness, so that he might give us nothing but grace. But that's not all. That's the gospel. We talk about the gospel all the time. And the gospel is great news. But that's not all of the gospel. See, Jesus, he's not just heaven bent on forgiving us of our sins. He is also bound and determined to make us righteous. And not just positionally righteous or declared righteous, Jesus actually wants to make us the kind of people who long for the same things that he longs for and who live the same way that he lived and who care about the same things that he cared about. One of the clearest places we see this is in Ezekiel 36, where a promise is made about what Christ will do and what, what the Father will do through the work of the Son. And God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'm going to forgive you of your sins. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. But the problem for, the problem I see in a lot of circles of American Christianity is we stop there. He's going to forgive us and he's going to cleanse us. But God doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The righteousness that Jesus says will divide all of humanity here in Matthew 13, God says he will give to us through the work of his son. He will cause us to be people who not just obey God's laws out of fear, but we actually long to. He says he will move us to. That's the greater righteousness. That's the deeper righteousness. And Jesus says that will be the determining factor on that day. It won't be, did you say a prayer? Not knocking saying a prayer. Prayer's great. But too many people turn a, a prayer, they, they treat it like it's a spell. Well, I prayed this prayer at this point in my life. That's not what gets you in. It's that you're forgiven, you receive grace, and then the trajectory of your life is set on this path of growing in this greater and deeper righteousness.
So how does this text, how does this text encourage us on that path? And I want to give you two things as we leave. Number one, the first thing I think we can pull from this, this parable is we should embrace the reality of judgment. We should embrace the reality of judgment. And I'm, I'm very, I chose that word, thought, that word embrace thoughtfully. I put a lot of thought into it. Because what I see in the world and what I see in the church is some people deny the reality of judgment. Some people tolerate it. But we should embrace it. We shouldn't push it to the side. We shouldn't just throw it all into the area of mystery. We actually should embrace it because it's true and because it's good news. And I know for a lot of people, when they think about final judgment, they don't instantly think good news. They don't think of it as something that would stir a lot of joy. Instead, it tends to stir a lot of questions. And I've asked these questions, and I, I'm, I am asked these questions as well all the time. If there's a day of judgment, what about people who haven't heard? Unreached people groups. What about babies who die? What about people in the Old Testament? If there's a day of judgment, what about those who have been totally mistreated and abused by the church? What about them? If there's a day of judgment, what about all of these unknowns? And those, there's so many hard questions there, and they're important questions. But I hear people ask that one a lot. If there's a day of judgment, what about? Do we ever stop and ask, though, if there isn't a day of judgment, what about? See, if there's no day of judgment... That means that our lives are cheapened because nothing we do really matters. If there is no day of judgment, that means that the bad guys win. That those who have spent their life cheating, exploiting, abusing, those who've used everyone and everything to feed their own lusts, in the end, they just get away with it all. If there is no day of judgment, that means evil is eternal, hope is a fantasy, and the promises of God are myths. If there is no day of judgment, Jesus' death was meaningless. It was just one more injustice in an unjust world. And so when people say, I don't know if I can believe in a God of judgment, I always want to ask them, well, can you believe in a God who lets evil and injustice win? Who just turns a blind eye to all of it? In the end, he's like, you know what, it's fine. It doesn't matter, what, it's fine. Do you know how evil our world is and how evil people can be? See, judgment means a day is coming when God will rid the earth of all evil. That's the picture here. The angels are going to come and scoop up evil, pull it out of God's good creation. And that's good news. It's really good news. Well, what about the hard questions? I guess I've wrestled with most of the questions that maybe you're wrestling with. Um, and there's some books that have been helpful and reading has been helpful. Here's where I come down on a lot of those hard questions. I trust that God, who in love created all people and who gave his son for the sins of the world, I trust that he'll get it right. Sometimes when we ask the question, we're actually 
presenting ourselves as like being more loving than him. We can't be more than loving than him. He is the definition of love. Abraham asked God, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer is, of course he will. And so don't let the hard questions keep you from grabbing hold of the great reality and the great promise of judgment. I do want to be clear. I want to offer a couple of caveats. Embracing this reality, it doesn't mean that we should speculate nor celebrate. It doesn't mean we should speculate on the eternal fate of others. He doesn't tell us this parable so we can just start making a list now. Well, they're going to hell. They're probably in. It's not what he's encouraging us to do. Jesus actually said, many who say, Lord, Lord, they're not getting in. He also said, the first will be last and the last will be first. And then you look at his life and he saved his most severe teachings about judgment and hell for the most religious people of the day. I think that should make us very cautious before we pronounce the judgment on other people and their eternal destination. That's number one. We shouldn't speculate. And number two, we shouldn't celebrate. Embracing the reality of judgment doesn't mean that we celebrate the destruction of other people, even if they're really horrible people, even if they're really wicked people. In Ezekiel 33, God says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, and neither should we. Instead, embracing the reality of judgment means we should be a people who long for and look to the day when God will deal fully and finally with all of the evil in this world. Embracing this reality means we pray and we pray with meaning and heart. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, embracing the reality of judgment means that we should seek to align how we're living today with that ultimate reality. And that's my second takeaway for you. The first one, embrace the reality of judgment. The second one, pursue righteousness as a new scribe. Pursue righteousness as a new scribe. What I mean by that, after Jesus tells this parable and all the parables, he asks his disciples, have you understood these things? And I love the disciples because they're like, yeah, we got it. (laughs) They obviously don't totally get it, but they're like, yeah, we think we know what you're talking about. And then Jesus says this rather cryptic thing. He says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What Jesus is saying here, taking all of chapter 13 together, what he's saying here is, if you understand his word, and you stand under his word, you now have become a new kind of scribe. A scribe not just trained in the Torah, you've been trained in the kingdom of heaven. And when he says new and old, this is when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament and its laws, but he didn't come simply to reaffirm them either. He came to fulfill them and transform them. And he said, if you hear and understand what I'm telling you, You're the new scribes, and you're going to go to the Old Testament, and you're going to find great things, and you're going to hold to that, but you're going to interpret it through the work that I'm doing, the new work that I'm doing. Now, 
being called a new scribe, I think that would be a good name for band, you know, the new scribes. Uh, but it's not all that, doesn't do a whole lot for us, but I want you to consider how stunning of a statement this was in that day. Scribes, the most revered men, the long white beards, beards they had all of their degrees hanging on the wall. And Jesus is like, no, they're liars, they're sons of hell. He's like, you're the new scribes. And who are the you? They're blue-collar, uneducated fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're prostitutes. They're the ordinary people. He was, says, I've entrusted this to you. You're the true and better scribes who earnestly seek not just to obey God's command, but seek to embody my heart. If we're going to live into the calling God's put before us, we can't be content with simply not sinning or, or believing Jesus died for our sins. I mean, that's essential and it's a beautiful truth. But we have to be men and women who also hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who hunger and thirst for a wholehearted devotion to God. And I want to be so clear here. We're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by our works, but we're certainly saved to good works. First Peter 2. Peter tells us the reason Jesus died. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You can't have the first part of that without the second part. I began by talking about illusions and reality. Man, I've sat with this for a week and it's been so convicting, so convicting, just sitting with this text. But as I've been reading this, I came across a number of passages in the New Testament where either Paul or James, they'll say, do not be deceived. Like, I don't want us to be a people who are deceiving ourselves. Our, is our life actually pointed in the trajectory of righteousness, true righteousness. Well, what does this righteousness look like? The best place to go is the Sermon on the Mount. I'll give you a few, a few tests that you can run on yourselves. When someone wrongs you, do you show them mercy and compassion or do you gossip, try to pay them back? Do you long for reconciliation or retaliation? It's a hard question. Do you forgive people? What about marriage? Are you faithful in your marriage? And I'm not just asking, are you not physically sleeping with someone you're not married to? I'm asking, are you faithful with your eyes? Are you faithful in your conversations with other people? Are you faithful in your imagination? Prayer. Jesus talks a lot about prayer on the Sermon on the Mount. And he's like, do it in secret because that's what really reveals who you are. So much of who we are in, in relation to God and where we are in our journey with God is revealed by our prayer life. I was talking to a pastor friend the other day and he said, I asked him, I said, hey, what percentage of your church do you think prays regularly? And he said, 90%. And I was like, whew. Man, I got to have you come and teach on prayer. And he was like, well, that's including meals. 
I was like, okay, how many people in your church do you think, what percentage do you think pray outside of meals? They said, I don't know, 10% maybe. See, there's this real danger we have of living in the culture we live in. There's a church on every corner. We've all heard the gospel so many times that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, but we, we don't pay attention to the fact that he also died to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And who you are and what you do, it matters. The choices we make matter. And I don't ask these questions to stir anxiety in you, but to reveal reality, to exhort you. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? If not, acknowledge the reality of that. Remember, what is, is the teacher. And also remember that the same Jesus who told this parable is the same Jesus who began the most famous sermon ever by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And one of the signs of God's work in our life is when we feel conviction, when we feel brought low, Jesus is saying, that's where I want you because that's where we learn and that's where we grow. As we move to the Lord's table, this gift, this gift that we celebrate every week, I've been thinking a lot of 1 John 1, 9, where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think communion is a great place where we can come and say, not just what do I believe or say I believe, but what do I actually want? How am I actually living? What am I longing for? And the grace of God means that we can be honest at the table. We can be honest about sin that has gotten a foothold in our life about spiritual dryness we might be experiencing, you name it. But we can come, we can confess, and know that he's faithful to forgive and to cleanse us and to spur us on towards love and good deeds. And we know this because Jesus Christ, the night before his crucifixion, took a, bod a loaf of bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood that's been poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I invite you to examine and to celebrate what Christ has done. Examine your life and then celebrate what he's done for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but instead you take part in Jesus Christ because a day of judgment is coming, but he's come to give you shelter and to lead you into life everlasting. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.